Welcome to How Not to DM. I'm your host, Derek. Thanks for joining me on my quest to interview the very best dungeon masters on this plane of existence. Before we get started, I need to shout out my newest patron, Mosey. Thanks so much, Mosey, for joining the fold. I know that you won't be disappointed. Thanks a ton to the rest of my patrons also for supporting the show and helping make this thing possible. If you'd like to support the show, want a shout out on my next episode, or want an inside scoop on upcoming guests, consider joining. You can find the link in my link tree or by heading to patreon.com slash hn, the number two, DM. Remember that 10% of my ad and patron money goes to support local LGBTQ plus youth via Encircle. Check out my link tree for more information. One last thing before we get started. If you could check the episode notes, there will be a link to Fireball Forge's landing page. There you can enter your email address. I'm creating this landing page so that I can collect emails of everybody who's interested in the Too Hot One Shot, my very first publication with my friend Matthew. So go ahead and click the link and enter your email address. I'll send you a quick email just saying that I've got it. And then as soon as we are ready to launch our Kickstarter, we'll be notifying you all so that you can help support us. Thank you. And now onto this episode's guest intro. Offbeat Outlaw is best known for his quirky skits featuring the Forever DM, finally getting to play, crazy power builds, and more. With a background in acting and performance, they were drawn to the game during the start of the pandemic and have been consumed by D&D and related content ever since. Enjoy. I am Offbeat Outlaw on the internet. I am a YouTuber. I make Dungeons and Dragons skits as well as longer form optimization based content in which I try to teach the world about how to make really good broken characters that are sometimes maybe not as practical as you might like, but some of them <laughs> are. I also go into analysis of like what subclasses and stuff. It's optimization and then posts. That's my brand. <laughs> how did you get into running games then? What was kind of the first game you ran, or do you remember your first experience and kind of how you ended up doing it and kind of how it went? My first like experience running games. So I was the person in the group who was like, everyone was like, you'd be good at being a dungeon master because they all wanted to play. So I was like, okay. And at this point in time, I had not watched any streams. I just knew Dungeons and Dragons was a thing and I knew the basic mm. premise of it. So I just read the books over and over and over and over and over again to learn how to play the game. And when I started, I just kind of like got the basic premise, jumped in. It was a mild uh, shoot, to say the best. It was rough. My players were very new. I was new. It was clunky. It was lots of like, oh, is that how you do this? Is that how you rule this? Let me go back and check. And also, frankly, my players weren't exactly the most courteous of me either they weren't exactly the most respectful players since then i've had much better experiences but like that first experience was a an interesting endeavor to say the least yeah i don't know if i've talked to anybody yet who started running games just after reading the books and had not much more context than that so from your perspective then which of the books and maybe like what parts of the books were most helpful in learning how to run the game and which ones do you feel like were just kind of too much or misleading or not clear enough? There's like a few ways I can answer this question. So I'm going to answer yeah. all of them. In terms of running the game, just getting uh -huh. up and started, the player's handbook has your back. Read that thing cover to cover. Read everything. And I mean absolutely everything. Do not skim. 
the biggest fumble I see from new dungeon masters is they skim. They will read parts of it and then they'll say like, I kind of get it and then they'll move on. But that's where the pedigree of running games and like being able to make those split second decisions comes in because you can immediately go, nope, I read this. I know where that comes from. And that sort of mentality is one of the best things I can recommend is just reading through that player's handbook. It's everything. Read the classes, know their class features, know how they work. And in terms of like what actually helped me get good at being a dungeon master, reading every spell section from player's handbook to Xanathar's from Tasha's now reading those spells teaches you so much about how to play the game. A third of those books is dedicated to spells. Every single class, except for the Barbarian and Monk, has a spell casting um, option. The game is spells. You need to know how those spells work. I know we love our marshals. I know we love our non-spell casters here. But you need to know those spells so that when it comes to designing your encounters, you are aware of their options. You are aware of what can come to you so that you can take advantage of it in fun ways to facilitate the fun and not just necessarily be like, whoa, 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 whoa. What the hell is this? Busting out this random spell on page 400 of Xanathar's that's been read exactly twice. I started improving a lot when I started reading the spell section. And then, like, I think most people who are interested in dungeon mastering are interested in telling stories and have lots of brilliant ideas about how to make an interesting world, how to make an interesting game. And in terms of that, I think that a lot of people get caught up on, and especially from the dungeon master's guide, they get caught up on, like, these rules. Well, not these rules, these suggestions that are saying things like, if you want to run a grim dark game, you got to do X, Y, Z. If you got want to run a heroic fantasy game, you've got to do this stuff. And at the end of the day, it's your game. Whatever feels right for you will make the most fun. And as a dungeon master, I believe the job of a dungeon master is to facilitate fun. Amen. Don't get caught up on like what genre you're in. Your genre is your own genre. Make whatever is fun happen. Yeah. Awesome. And honestly, I'm not surprised you said the player's handbook seemed like the most useful from the get-go. I have found very similar. Like honestly, just to get started and to get going, that's really the best thing. And the more I've read high-level spells, the more I've kind of gotten better at knowing how the game works and knowing how to play in your encounters and stuff around that. Mm -hmm. Awesome advice. What do you feel like are some of the mistakes you've made while running games and what lessons do you feel like you've learned or that other people could take away from those? Because of how I learned this game, I learned in a very removed way from RP. I learned uh-huh. very much the mechanics of the game first. So I design a lot of my encounters and the things in my games with mechanics first is kind of how I describe it to my players. As a result, though, I have to recognize that one of the shortcomings is it can be kind of hard to step back and just let the players do the thing that they, they want to do, which is dick around in the world that you made and make fun of it. And yeah. it's like stepping back from that and just like <laughs> letting it happen in its chaos. I can do it and I'm getting better at it, but it's definitely something that took the most time, I think, for me to learn at the very least. And I'm still coming to grips with it. I'm like, oh, but the mechanics are so important. And then Danny in my Friday campaign will be like, I'm a skeleton and I've got to, okay. (laughs) So taking that step back and acknowledging that, you know, as much as that's where I get my fun, the fun of everybody else at the table can come from so many different areas and making that space and taking that step back to allow that space is also important. Yeah, awesome. 
Do you have any memories from games that you've played, whether they be games you've streamed or recorded in some way, or games that you just shared with your friends that are really special or really fun or really ridiculous that you have to share? Oh, yes. This actually happened very recently. So my Friday campaign is a level 20 campaign. So everyone started at level 20. And how I've set it up is that everybody has three character sheets that they can swap between. They have to have one class that is maintained throughout the sheets just to allow them to like swap things out and tackle different scenarios without necessarily requiring levels. I give them ASIs and stuff, though. Their new skill cap is 30. They're gods. But... One of my favorite things about high-level D&D is how high concept you can get and how ridiculous the problems you can present to your players. So in this scenario, they had to go to this town and they had to get rid of the Pope. They knew nothing about the town. They knew nothing about this religious thing. But they get there and they quickly learn that everybody in the town, nearly everybody anyway, is a simulacrum of this named Z's. It's to the point of 50,000 simulacrums. (laughs) It's a lot. My players quickly went, what are we supposed to do? And that's when I reminded them about the spell wish. I didn't remind them. They knew. They've played with me a lot. They know that this is the thing that I do. But they all looked at each other and went, we got to make our own army. And they took it a step further. They decided that instead of just making a big army and going like, we will now wage war, they're like, no, let's be subtle. One of the characters played by Brooklyn Tuesday, their character's Viari, is very espionage focused. They have alter self at will, invisibility at will. They can be absolutely anybody and absolutely everywhere. They decided to make that their simulacrum army. So they made 15,000 of these characters and they made alter self to make them all look different. And Danny had a big brain moment and went, let's use all of these Viaris, the Viarmi as we call it, to excavate (laughs) the desert, search for precious jewels, and then sell them work with the nobles that they knew about in order to set up an economy that they would then use to absolutely deprive the Zs of spell components by purchasing all of them and creating a fake monopoly. And I went, that is the most ridiculous plan. (laughs) I love it. Instead of like normal warfare, they just go straight embargo and like figure out how to buy all the spell components. I love it. It's incredible. I was like, you know what? I was not expecting this at all. Let's do it. <laughs> Let's trash that prep. We're making an economy. Get out of your stocks. Did you have to do any economic research to make it happen, or did you just go with it? I went with their plan. Like I kind of have a rule that I do. It's like, I want plans to work with my players. I was like, this is so good. I want this to work. I don't care if it doesn't necessarily make a ton of sense. I want this to work. I took one economics class in university. Yep, same. Didn't do great at it, but I did it. I was just like, you know what? They need supply and they need demand. X, baby, let's give them money. That was basically it. And I've just followed it along with their plan and added as many complications in their plan as possible. Just not necessarily stop the machine, but just throw enough wrenches in it that it like stops and that chugs forward. But just giving yep. those moments of quick problem solving is what I'm trying to present to them. Because, like, the plan's going to work, but they don't know how it's going to work. And that's where I find my fun. Yeah, got to keep it interesting. (laughs) Yeah. That's awesome. So you've been running games for a while now. In your mind, what makes an ideal player, we'll be specific, an ideal player at your table? An ideal player at my table, I've DM'd for many, many players. And every single player that I played with past my first group (laughs) has been lovely. 
But in my games, I do run very combat heavy games. And my combats are complicated because I'm also usually running at high level because I like high level D&D. I like level 20 a lot. I think there's so many interesting things you can do there. I wouldn't say necessarily like the ideal player, like every player has to be like this in order to play at my table. But like in order to, I think, best experience the games that I run, I think what I'm looking for is a player who knows that character sheet inside and out, like knows how their abilities work beyond just knowing what's there, but looking how they work together. Because it's so easy to just look at your character sheet and be like, I've got a bunch of these features, don't necessarily know how they work together. But what I'm looking for is somebody who's going like, okay, I am a Blade Singer level 13, Warlock 4, Fighter 3. I need to make sure that I keep my reaction ready so that if in case someone hits me, I can up my armor class to 28 using bait and switch as in combination with shield. But it, just in case, it would be more important to shut down with a counter spell with that reaction. So I'm going to wait and make sure the spell casters are all checked off first. Set up with bonus action spirit shroud. I can make this many attacks in an action. Roll, 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 roll. Damage, damage, damage. And then just speed through those turns. Mm -hmm. Knowing that character sheet is very important in the games that I run. But in terms of like outside of combat, in terms of RP stuff, the ideal player I'm looking for is somebody who's just willing to participate. Not necessarily start stuff. Because I can always find the players who start things. Like in my Friday game, I've got four players. I've got Brooke. I've got Danny, I've got Patrick, and I've got Amelia. Now, these four people are all very different people in terms of how they interact in the world. So I've got Danny, who likes to start stuff. Brooke, who likes to stick her nose where it doesn't belong. Patrick, who just likes RPing and likes being these characters and like embodying them. And Amelia, who likes being the most complicated person at the table. And it's great. But there's two people who start things. Amelia plays reactively to the things around them and will sometimes instigate. And Pat is more about envisioning in the world. These are all welcome RP styles at my table. And even if I got their RP styles wrong and they're just like, your arc is just making me do that, you moron. All the same, those <laughs> yeah. play styles are all welcome at the table. And RP is very fuzzy. I want people to know their character sheets, but that's just me. We did a high level kind of like a mini campaign, my friends and I last summer, and it's mm -hmm. so much more complex like mm. the gap between fifth level and 14th level, the amount of things you can do and like how complicated the spells are and stuff. It's just insane. And unless you know your character sheet well, your combat's going to take forever and everyone's mm. going to be super bored. So you got to keep it moving. And now a word from How Not to DM's sponsors. Let's kick things off with Roll to Cast. What if there was an actual play podcast where every season was an original campaign in a different system? What if they invited the creators of the TTRPGs they love on the show to share their passion and insight? Nominated on the Australian Podcast Awards and the winner of the 2022 Ennies, Roll to Cast has seasons of Cyberpunk, Vampire, Kids on Bikes, Avatar Legends, and more. You'll find interviews with the likes of Mike Pondsmith and a friendly community of fans. Find Roll to Cast, that's R-O-L-E, to cast on Spotify or your favorite podcatcher and join us on Discord and Patreon to dive into a world you love or one you've yet to discover. And Adventure Dice. If you've been listening to the show for a while, you'll recall Andrea and Blair being guests on my first season. In addition to dice and other awesome TTRPG accessories they have available on their site, right now they're accepting pre-orders and orders for their advent calendars for the holiday season. No matter what holiday you celebrate, they have an advent calendar for it. They have 
ones of different sizes for different numbers of days for different budgets. Go check that out and find a, the perfect gift for the tabletop gamer in your life for the holiday season. If you use the code HN, the number two DM on checkout, that's HN2DM, five characters, you can get 10% off your order and you can help support the show because uh, I get a little percentage of your purchases as well. So go check that out. Make your orders for the holiday season through Adventure Dice. That's adventuredice.ca and help support How Not to DM while you're at it. And finally, podcasteditors.online and videoeditors.online. Are you a podcast or video content creator who wishes you spent more time creating the content you love and less time doing the boring editing that bogs you down? Check out podcasteditors.online or videoeditors.online to see all of their awesome rates and offerings for editing content. Buy a few hours of editing a la carte or buy their bulk plans if you have more content that you need created. Check out the links in the episode notes for more information about both podcasteditors.online and videoeditors.online. And now let's get back to the second half of the show, starting off with Quickfire Chaos. This week, Offbeat and I are going to review CBR's five most broken character builds and decide whether or not we think they're really broken. I have a little mini game that I do in the middle of episodes. I do role play with some people, but because you have a very niche kind of thing that you're good at, I wanted to pull up an article of the five most broken character builds according to CBR, and I don't think they're very broken, and I'm sure you won't either. I want to hear what you think of these builds and then like broken or not, and then how you would make it more broken or a better version, you think, of the builds okay. here. So the first one, I don't think this is incredibly broken from first blush, but I'll let you decide. The Order of Scribes Wizard and Tempest Cleric create lightning. So the idea is Order of Scribes Wizard can change the type of spells they cast or the type of damage to lightning, mm-hmm. and then as a Tempest Cleric, you can use your channel divinity to do full damage on any spell that you cast of a lightning or thunder type, so you could kind of play around with that. So yeah, it's a lot of damage. So they say the pros are massive damage output, minimal level investment, you just need two levels of cleric to do that. But I guess you just you wouldn't have a ton of channel divinities in that case. And then strong martial abilities and full casting. Alright, so what do you think? Yeah. Broken or not broken? So something that's important to note, maximizing the damage of your dice is a multiplier of 1.7. So it's not a doubling, it is a 1.7 multiplier. And depending on the spell that you are casting, that really determines the overall brokenness of this. Broken is a really hard thing for to assess. This to me just looks like, oh, someone multi-classed once. Right. (laughs) No, that's exactly what I was thinking. This is one thing, this is a thing. Bada boom, bada big, would you look at that? It's a multi-class. I did make a build that tried to take advantage of this as much as possible to make the biggest fireball. It was like a lightning ball thing. But I would hardly call it broken. Like, it's okay. It's interesting. It's cool. I would definitely say play this because it's a lot of fun. I've played a build like this and it's it's really fun. It wasn't broken, though. Like It wasn't to the point where it was taking away from everybody else at the table. It wasn't, like, absurd. Yeah, this definitely isn't five most broken character builds, I would say. This is looking like basics. 
when you said, oh, wow, someone multiclass, that's exactly what I said to myself when I was reading. I was like, so they figured like one combo. Okay, cool. They read like page 226 of the player's handbook. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> that's good. That's Congrats. Good. All right. Moving on to the next one. Fighter Hexblade Crossbow Specialist can output ludicrous damage. That's their tagline here. Okay. Hexblade Warlock is more martially themed, designed around using weapons with its charisma stat. It can seem an unusual multi-class with fighter, but higher levels, the build can output an eye-watering level of damage. The Hexblade gets a number of buffs that increase damage on each individual attack, while the fighter makes more attacks than any other class. Okay, so they're saying by stacking Hex and Hexblade's curse, you can add a d6 plus your proficiency in damage to each hit. With 11 levels in fighter, the crossbow expert feet and hand crossbow feet, they can apply that damage to four attacks on most turns, devastating most foes. So I'm looking at this and I'm going, well, they're not using sharpshooter, which is the reason why you do hand crossbow. That's the gimmick, kind of like the bread and butter, like baby's first power build is everybody goes hand crossbow, crossbow expert, sharpshooter. It's really good. It's a really solid build. There's no real downside to it. But they're not taking that. Yeah. I'm also noticing that there are 11 levels in Fighter and the Crossbow Expert feat. You can get more levels in Warlock. I don't see why you aren't using Spirit Shroud at this point. Spirit Shroud can upcast. Spirit Shroud can do even more damage. There's no mention of Action Surge either. And this isn't even the only way to get a build that can do ludicrous amounts of damage in this way. Gloomstalker, Ranger, plus Fighter mm. also works very yep. similarly and can make even more attacks. Yep. And also just a little inaccuracy here. Fighter makes more attacks than any other class. That's not true. An attack is any time that you roll the d20 to see if you hit. The class that can make the most attacks in a turn is a wizard with Scorching Ray. With a ninth level Scorching Ray, they can make 10. I think that ties with the fighter. Oh, 10 different Scorching Rays. Yeah. Yeah. And if you action surge, you can do even more. So it's like if you get put two levels of fighter. So it's not necessarily yeah, yeah. true. This isn't bad. It's just like... It's a multi-class. Yep. Agreed. Yeah. Again, probably not broken. Okay, here's the swashbuckler on the next one. Battlemaster swashbuckler can inflict many punishments. Battlemaster fighter, multi-class with swashbuckler rogue, cunning action, uh, ability to sneak attack, maneuvers of battlemaster, and more esoteric abilities of the swashbuckler. This combo gives player plenty of options without any appreciable loss in combat effectiveness. Able to control and lock down enemies without spells with the maneuvers and stuff. So this to me seems like all the benefits of a Battlemaster, and I'm not really seeing why Rogue is here in terms of the benefits they're saying. They say pivot between offense and defense, be able to sneak attack and cunning actions. Sneak attack is a really weird ability. It works really well if you're a Rogue, and it doesn't work well if you're multiclassing always, because it's kind of got the key point problem of Monks, where it only levels up as you take levels in the class. Yep. So it's like, if you're just taking a dip, it's like an extra D6 once per turn. Like, it's not enough. And if you're taking a large amount of levels in the Rogue, well, then you might be losing out a lot on other things. So you got to be kind of careful when multiclassing in the Rogue. It's good for a dip for cunning action, but to suggest that sneak attack is an appreciable benefit in this case, I'm a little skeptical. Especially considering Battlemaster can do a lot by itself. Battlemaster is an incredibly good class. I believe it can deal at level 20, 152 damage in a turn, which is only bested by the Eldritch Knight, which can do 167 with Shadowblade. So it's like, if you're looking for something that can do offense and defense, the Battlemaster has tons of maneuvers now that can allow this. 
Battlemaster is always like way up there on power build charts, and yet I never see people play them. Have you seen people play a lot of Battlemasters? I play a lot of Battlemasters personally. Like the thing with Battlemaster that's really good, especially since Tasha's, is they've added some maneuvers which are really, really effective. One of the problems that I've found with Battlemaster, especially if you're only taking a dip, is you feel like your techniques don't go very far. But they've added some things that are, in my opinion, make it feel like the dip was worth it. For instance, there is this maneuver called Ambush. Ambush allows you to add your Battlemaster dice to stealth checks, but also Ooh. your initiative roll. Your initiative Ooh. roll is something that lasts all combat. And in my opinion, that is really, really good value for a single expenditure of your superiority dice. Additionally, there's this other maneuver called Bait and Switch. You swap places with an allied creature, and then you get to add your Battlemaster dice to either yours or their armor class until the start of your next turn. If you only take a dip, that is a D8, which is an average of 4.5. That is only slightly less than shield, and you can do it on your turn. So you can prep and give yourself this big armor class or give a squishier person a big armor class. And that is a benefit that kind of is better than just adding damage and maybe knocking them prone with trip attack. But trip attack is pretty good Battlemaster technique. Battlemaster, I find myself adding it to a lot of builds because I do add fighter to a lot of things because the maneuvers are just so applicable to a lot of things. It's like, they're never a hindrance to have. I'm never looking at it like, if only like I had something else. It's like, oh, I can do this. Yeah, always very applicable. I like it. Mm -hmm. Next one is Goodberry Druid and Cleric. I've seen this one a bunch too. Life Domain Cleric. With a Life Domain, you get to add two plus the spell's level to each healing spell that you cast. I've heard that people don't think that you can do this with Goodberry, though. I can't remember. I feel like there was... Um, there was an errata, I believe, a few years ago that prevented this interaction from happening. Right. But I do believe Jeremy Crawford has allowed it on his Twitter. A love-hate relationship with that Twitter. <laughs> I think everyone feels that way. Last one here, Warlock Sorcerer that lives in Infamy. Okay. The build that uses these mechanics in addition to the aspect of the moon, Eldritch Invocation that rids the character of need to sleep, yet constant short rest to create spell slots and sorcery points. Again, I don't think it is the most broken. It is very popular. You made a video about this, right? I've talked about it briefly, and I actually had a player make a build like this in one of my previous campaigns that I streamed called Seven Seas, Six Idiots. And, you know, the infinite resource gimmick is nice. It's a game of resource management. Having more resources is never a problem. But if you're running your games as brutally as maybe you should, they're going to need a long rest at some point because they're going to be out of hit dice. It's like, oh, just have the cleric heal you. Oh, have the cleric heal you when there's probably somebody who might be a little bit more applicable in the situation. You're running out of spell slots. You're running out of time. You are going to be a resource suck at some point if you don't take those long rests. And I'm not going to deny this and say like, oh, it's a bad build. It is a good build. Having those resources is nice. Being able to just launch those big spells consistently is good. But it's not so broken to the point where I'm like banning it from tables as I hear that some people will be like, no coffee lock. I'm like, it's I. It's still limited by the action economy. You still only have an action, a bonus action, and your movement speed. You can only launch so many spells in a combat. And most combats that I've run recently take anywhere from one to four turns. So it's like, mm -hmm. I can manage four big spells. You just have a lot of resources. Is it a bit of an issue? Maybe. But if you are targeting the threats properly, they're going to run out of hit dice. They're going to become a resource suck. And they will need that long rest. 
Yeah. Something that's funny that I think people have really started to move away from, but it causes this problem is I don't think a lot of DMs run the six to eight encounters a day kind of thing. You know, most people I talk to, it's like maybe one or two combats per long rest. And so, of course, they just like totally destroy everything you throw at them because you haven't really like taxed their resources as much as you could and kind of made them more desperate. And yeah, Coffee Luck is a good example of that. Like you said, if you were throwing enough encounters at them to really make it dangerous, then eventually they would be uh, power sucking. Then they're not a big problem for you anymore. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Six to eight is still a lot. And like, I definitely don't do that every time or every day, but like I shoot for it, you know. It's not six to eight necessarily combat encounters. Right. Six to eight encounters, an encounter being defined as any time that you encounter a thing. But yep. like presenting like interesting problems for your players that they have to use their resources for. I think a lot of DMs get kind of caught up in trying to make puzzles, but they'd never actually look at their players' resources. Like, what do they have available? What are you after? I tell my players, I'm like, I need you in that D&D Beyond link so I can look at your resources and make good puzzles. So I can go like, ooh, they could use this spell for this. They could use this spell for this. And then I know exactly what I'm after. If they get around it, whatever. I'm big chilling. Like, I'll get them next time. But (laughs) usually, like, you get good at it and you get to the point where it's like, the only way that they're going to get across that is that they use their fourth level spell slot on Dimension Door. There's no way other way. And they know that and you know that. And if you're going after that, you can get it. They might be able to figure something else out. They might be able to, like, I don't know, polymorph someone into a bird and then they fly across. But it's still a fourth level slot. You still got what you wanted. A lot of, I think, DMs kind of build their encounters in a vacuum, and this is why I recommend people read spells so much, because it avoids this problem, because you're more aware of what your players have available to them, and then you can proactively plan and go after their resources, rather than just, like, hoping and praying, like, please, oh God, use a resource here, and then it's like, we're just gonna walk (laughs) around. Oops. <laughs> yeah, I love it. Like you said, encounters, not necessarily combat, but there's tons of different ways you can have your players use what they've got as far as abilities and spells. And I like that you really take your time to custom and tailor make them specifically for what your players can do. That's cool. All right. So most people will know you from your content that you've been creating, both your skits and like you said, your longer form content delving into optimization builds and that kind of thing. And also, you know, your live streams and that kind of thing too. So how did you get started in creating D&D content? You know, had you been doing content before and and you kind of shifted into this or is it just diving in head first? Talk us through how that started. So I started making content in 2019. I was working as a retail worker in a sock shop. My boss said, do you have anything to do all day in here? This place is really boring. And I was like, wait, you're going to let me do other stuff while I'm working? (laughs) And she was like, you're going to need it. (laughs) So I just was like, oh, screw it. I'll bring my computer. I started off doing Let's Plays. I was like, I'm just going to record some gameplay and talk over it and learn how to edit because I'd always been interested in content creation. I started that. I had a lot of fun just editing and learning that skill. And I did that for like a year. I got to like 500 subscribers. And then I was like, ugh, this isn't really working out. And then I was in my fourth year of university at this time. I have a theater and drama studies degree and an acting diploma. 2020 happened. And now I'm an actor and there's no work at all. And so I'm like, well, I'm in Canada. Papa Trudeau is paying us money to stay home. (laughs) Must be nice. 
It was a good time. I'm not gonna lie. I, was, I slammed dunked on my American friends. I was like, ha, yeah, you should have. But, you have. <laughs> but I was like, okay. My friends all started on TikTok, and I was like, well, let's give it a try. And I started just making videos and just trying things out. And I noticed, I was like, hey, D and D content's a thing. I'm gonna just try to make skits based on these games that I'm playing. And those videos were doing the best out of the ones that were performing. Notably, at the time, like I think it got to like a thousand views, and it was like that was just the start. And I just kept making those skits, kept making those skits, kept making those skits on TikTok and building and building there. And then eventually I was just like, I got to a large number and I was like, well, I should take these people to a place where I can make money. I can't make money off of TikTok. TikTok doesn't pay Canadians. And so. Really? I didn't know that. I have not made a single dime off of TikTok. Really? I've not made a cent. Nothing I do on TikTok matters. I post on there as a courtesy, go to my YouTube, <laughs> but I took them to YouTube and that's where I started making content there. And then it started doing well. And now it's my job and I have a Patreon as well to help continuously support. And I just started making skits there on YouTube. And then I started going into more longer form content because that's also like skits are great, but also I need more content. I need to diversify my content. I don't want to just make skits. I have all these opinions about D&D and about running games and about game design. I want to be able to tell people about them. So I started making those videos as well. And the power build thing just happened by fluke. So I was talking with my buddy, one of my moderators, one of my best friends from high school as well. He goes by Ballad Boy online. And I went like, why do you think the people who watch my content like my content? And he goes, they like the wacky stuff that they don't know about. They like the information presented in the skit. And I went, okay, time to teach people how to make crazy builds like I think of. And Mm -hmm. that was where the power building thing started. And then from there, it just kind of grew and I got better at it. And I read more and I learned more and I got better at it. And it was a process in 2020. It took a lot of time, but now I've I'm running out of ideas for builds. I'm running out of things to optimize for. I do have one down the pipe. I got to 1,367 damage. I'm going to present it. <laughs> We're going to make that video soon. It was that slow process of just making stuff that I enjoyed. And making content is a slow process. Everyone can see the success, but I've just described a journey that started in 2019. It's 2022 now. That was a long process of me learning editing, learning content. I studied acting for four years. I consider that a part of my journey. I consider that a part of like my journey to being an entertainer, learning how to speak, learning how to talk to people, learning all of these skills that just take time. It's a thing that you can do. I think the easiest way to do it is just start and be consistent. And it's just acknowledge that it's a time sink. You'll get there as long as you're consistent. Yeah, quite the grind. The thing I think I saw first was your Forever DM series. That's kind of like a lot of the wackiness that you're describing. That's really where I started noticing it. So how did that start? How did you decide on the scarf and the pink Nike headband? And are your own games similar to this at all? Like, is there any kind of grain of truth in there? Or is it all just, you know... Or is it all fake? Yeah. Is the funny man a liar? (laughs) (laughs) That's not what I mean. Do you pull inspiration from any place or, you know, do you create it yourself? Not fake. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, I know what you're saying. So how the Forever Game started, it started in TikTok. It started the summer of 2020. So this actually comes from a, another thing that I discovered in 2019. This 
recently came up again this year, but I want to make sure people know there's a Wired article. I've mentioned this a while ago, but D&D TikTok is Commedia dell'arte, which is a form of Italian theater from the 1700s, a form of street theater. And what you would mm. do is you would put different articles of clothing in order to differentiate your characters and everything is based in stock and stereotype. And my D&D skits, I was like, I recognize that. I studied that form of theater. I performed in that form of theater. I know how to do that form of theater. And so I just filmed it and did it. And one of the most important parts is the clothing. And so my characters that I would play all had distinct headpieces. Rogue had the scarf. Fighter had the headband. Barbarian had this other thing. I had a wizard who had like this black hat. Like all of the characters were distinct and this was important. The Forever DM series started though as like a bit of a joke. Like the rogue character got cocky with the dungeon master who had no headband and no clothing. And I was like, well, what is your character? And I was just like, heh funny fighter rogue multi-class who were like the characters that were kind of like became the pseudo secondary main characters and they're like oh my god the first episode starts with him entering into a bar pissing on a board and then burning it all down and becoming level 20 by stealing all of the adamantium weapons right yeah, it's anyway. all the adamantium <laughs> weapons and that was the first video and so that's how i decided on the nike headband and the scarf and is there truth to this now, the Forever DM series is largely fantastical. I'm sorry. I have never actually done that to somebody. <laughs> However, there is some elements of truth. Because there are gimmicks in there that I have done. A lot of the times in those things, like in the story overall, I have not done. The individual moments, setting up a peasant cannon. You've done it. I did it as a point. I had a dungeon master who was very intent on like saying there's real world physics in D&D. And I was like, no, there's not. I can make infinite energy. I can make infinite momentum. I can infinitely accelerate this thing as long as I have enough peasants. And they were intent on insisting, no, we got to use real world physics. So I was like, okay, I'm going to break it. And so I set up the peasant cannon and I went, when this pole gets to the end of this line, either... That spear is going to be barreling at a 100,000 kilometers per second and is going to tear a hole so large to the height of that Tarrasque that you will probably never see your world again. Or you can say that D&D is not a physics simulator <laughs> and it will do 1d4 damage because it's an improvised weapon. The choice is yours. And so in that moment, they went, okay, maybe you're right. <laughs> <laughs> oh. The peasant cannon is classic. Peasant cannon, it's not mine either. It's right. an old, old, old gimmick. I just found it and was like, let's do it. <laughs> <laughs> do not do real world physics in your D&D games. You can take inspiration. You can use it to like logic through rulings. But oh my God, it does not make sense. There's no momentum. Without momentum, there's no physics. It's okay. Do not worry. Do not fret. There are worse things in the world. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, man, that's funny. I didn't know that that was a type of theater. Like, in my mind, I know, okay, yes, they're wearing different things on their head to portray different characters. And like, that's a thing that I recognize in the world, but I didn't know it was a specific type of theater in Italy. So that's mm -hmm. fascinating. Yeah, it was largely done with masks as well was like the uh -huh. original thing. So it was largely they based on swap like swap masks. Yeah, makes sense. Cool. Have you ever been kicked out of a game? for power building or rule loophole shenanigans like you are so fond of finding. I have never actually been kicked out of a game. I'm very upfront about what my builds do. What I would used to do is I'd be like, all right, this is how I have fun. Sit down with me. I'm going to walk you through this. I'm going to prep you for this. I'm going to tell you how to beat it. 
I'm going to give you all the cards, and I want you to play them as you wish. Because I do believe that that's good faith. I know so much about this game. It is unfair for me to assume that every dungeon master I'm going to play with has as much free time as a full-time content creator who makes Dungeons (laughs) & Dragons content. That's not fair. So I do go to them and I say, this is how it works. Are you okay with this? If no, I will change the build and I will play something simpler. I have never received a no. I've had DMs usually go, hell yeah, let's see this challenge. There have been some times where they've been unprepared for the challenge and have asked me to come and be like, okay, until I'm better, can you make this just a tweak worse? Can you do like the not optimal thing for a bit so I can figure out the counterplay? But I've never been kicked out of a game because I'm a delight. And in terms of like rules loopholing, I'm aware that rules is written is bad. Rules is written is not a good way to play the game. There's a lot of things that don't work rules is written. So it's like, like, you know how like if a creature dies, it becomes an object. Revivify requires you to target a creature. So yeah, it doesn't make sense. Yeah, you can't use that spell. (laughs) But it's rules as written is not necessarily the best way to play the game. So I do avoid that. I do, however, after sessions sometimes go, hey, you ruled this. This is how I've ruled it in the past. I just want to know, is that how we're ruling it going forward? If so, cool. I just want to know what the plan is. But it's like, I've never been kicked out because I think you got to be respectful, you know, because if you are a power builder, I think there are ways to do it like an and there's ways to do it like a good person. And I think being up front and laying all your cards out on the table is part of that collaborative DM dungeon master player experience. That is incredible. And I hope that all power builders will take that to heart. I'm sure they won't because there's (laughs) still tons of people out there who just want to say gotcha to the DM. But yeah, that's awesome. I love that. And I love it when my players come to me and want to like do stuff, even if it's not specifically like optimization stuff. If it's like, Mm -hmm. what about adding this to my backstory? What about that? Like, that's part of the fun. Exactly. So awesome. Have you ever had anybody reach out to you asking you to help break their game mechanics or like their homebrew stuff or, or anything like that. Like, hey, you know how to break stuff. So can I send this to you? And can you show me all of the ways that it's bad? I have a lot of people reach out for that. It's to the point where I'm a little bit like, I can't get to everybody. So I usually yeah. save that service for my friends uh-huh. and for like my other dungeon master and content creator friends that I know. If you're a patron on Patreon, and I get this a lot too, I do actually like, if you send me your build, I'll go through it bit by bit and help you make it better. Because, you Uh know, you're paying for me at that point. You know what? I'll I'll do anything for money. But if it's just like a random Instagram DM from somebody, I'm like, look, I got things I got to do in my day. There's a lot. I can't do it for everybody. But I have had people reach out and the people that I play with as well, especially like other players will come to me for build advice because they want their builds to be comparable or if not, just like help tweak them to be efficient and help tweak them to be better and like. I love making characters. It's like opening up the hood and looking inside like, ooh, what we got here? How can I make this what they want, you know? That's a big part of the reason why I started power building as well was like, I would have tons of players who put tons of stuff in their backstory, tons of work. And then like, they wouldn't be able to do anything that they claimed in their backstory. And I was like, I want to make your backstories real. If you want to be like, I can kill a beholder in one hit. I know how to do that. Let's make it happen. Like, let's get you there. And rather than you just saying, like, I can do that, and then you output 50 damage across your entire turn, and the beholder's still standing, and it's kind of like, ooh, oops, maybe I can't. (laughs) 
you know? I do, yeah. So listeners out there, if you're looking for help with optimizing a build, it sounds like there's a way you can do it. Hit up his Patreon. Also, I'm assuming if someone reached out and they offered to pay, you probably could figure it out too. So yeah. Yeah, that's true. I would do that too. <laughs> so game designers, keep that in mind. What is your favorite power build? And to help narrow the scope, I'll just make it like your favorite build right now, unless there is one in your mind that's just like, this is the build to end all builds. I do have one. I do have my favorite build of all time. It is Bladesinger 13, Hexblade Warlock 4, Fighter 3, Battlemaster. It is so good. I go, this is the best build that I think I can ever make based on its efficiency, its damage output, its utility options, its weakness. It has weaknesses, those being its saving throws. But the saving throws that is bad, it is the wisdom save. Uh-huh. But that's so funny. If I get dominate person, I am a weapon against my own party, which is great. But <laughs> that is its one weakness is the single wisdom save. All of its other saves are good. It has an armor class of average of 28. It has a hit point average of 130, which is a little low. But with Bladesinger's defensive options, you could be able to reduce damage based on a spell slot expended times five. You have up to seventh level slots. That's a potential 35 damage reduction. Or another way to look at it, 35 extra hit points. So it's like, it's so effective. And its main gimmick is how the Bladesinger's extra attack works. Bladesinger's extra attack states, when you take the attack action on your turn, you can make an additional weapon attack. Additionally, you can replace one of your weapon attacks with a cantrip. If that cantrip were to be, say, Eldritch Blast from Warlock, you are now essentially acting as if you were a tier above everybody else. At tier three, which is a level 11, you are making effectively four attacks in a single action. That is the equivalent of a 20th level fighter. And you're doing that every single turn. And that's because you have Eldritch Blast that you can roll three different attacks with at that level, right? Mm. Cantrip scale with the player level, not with the level of that specific class. So Exactly. Yeah. Throw on top of that, you also now have fighter's action surge. You can now make eight attacks in a turn throw on top of that spirit shroud and now you're dealing an extra d8 per attack and then as you get higher and higher level in wizard you can get up to seventh level spell slots that is a seventh level spirit shroud that is an extra 3d8 per attack at that level at level 20 you're now making five attacks per action action surge for 10 attacks per action hexblade's curse an extra six damage on top of that you can deal up to about 320 damage in a nova round which is nice and I'm saying all this, and people, if they're familiar with my cons, will be like, that's not the most damage. You literally said at the beginning of this, you can do 1,300. It's enough damage. It's enough. And the thing is, you get all of this back on a short rest. You can do this again the entire day. There's no limit. You just take a nap, come back, you're ready to go again. And you have catnap, so that can be a 10-minute short rest once per day. So that's an extra short rest per day. You are ready to go all day. And you are still a level 13 wizard. You have seventh level spell slots. You have really good spells. Wall of Force, Banishment, Polymorph, Plane Shift. You have these options available to you. So if you want to control the battlefield, you still have that available to you. With Ambush and Gift of Alacrity from Fey Touched as a feat, you can have an average initiative score of 11 with rolling those dice. So you can usually move first, set up first, do all your stuff first. 
Throw on top of that, maybe for instance, you're like, oh, this setup's too slow. You got to use so many bonus actions. That's okay. Why don't you set up contingencies? Use a sixth level spell slot to set up a fifth level spirit shroud. You can deal an extra 2d8 per hit. It's great. And it saves you your action economy with your bonus actions. You're ready to go and turn one now. It's so versatile. It's so potent. And it's relentless. It doesn't run out of resources fast enough because it gets them back. It gets its action search, battle master techniques. It gets its, its warlock spell slots back. Once per day, it can get that seventh level spell slot back because of arcane recovery. It just keeps going. I played this in a campaign. The dungeon master told me, go as hard as you want. And I went, okay. And I made this thing. And I went, this thing goes hard. <laughs> and so I've played it in three separate campaigns now. And it is relentless. Every dungeon master I played it with went, this thing is a consistent problem. And it's never been to the point where they're like, cut it out. But it has always been like, help me get good enough to face this thing. And wisdom saves. It is wisdom saves. You kind of got to target it. It's a little annoying that you got to do it, but you have to do it. But the thing is, it's a wizard, so it's got counter spells. So you better make those wisdom save abilities and not spells, because otherwise they're not happening. <laughs> yeah, I was thinking you could also have global invulnerability at that level. And so a lot of lower level spells aren't touching you either. There's so many things you could do. Wow. That build is nuts. It is nuts. Matthew, I know you're listening to this. And no, uh, you cannot change your um, fighter to a uh, blade singer right now. Sorry. He's been talking to me about this. He thinks Blade Singer sounds really cool, and eventually we'll play a game where he can play one. But anyway, to wrap things up, I'd love to hear some words of advice you've got for DMs and then for content creators. So we'll do DMs first, then content creators. But yeah, if you could like think of just a couple of things that you would say to DMs out there, and then a couple of things you'd say to content creators out there, whether they be seasoned or you know thinking of starting out. Yeah, what advice do you have? Starting DMs and for old DMs, kind of like some general advice that I think everybody could benefit from. Do not compare yourself to other dungeon masters. Do mm. not. Straight up, do not. Like, don't look at Matt Mercer. Don't look at Brennan Lee Mulligan and be like, I want to be like that. That's a bad idea. They put in so much skill and effort. Let's like if I went and started playing basketball and went, I want to be LeBron James and I'm going to aspire to be that every day. It's going to be soul crushing how bad you are. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's going to be so hard. Focus on yourself. Focus on the skills that you do have. Focus on bettering those and you will find that your games will benefit and they will feel like you. They will feel like your games and you will be comfortable with that. I did not watch Critical Role I watched one episode like a month ago. That was the oh, first yeah. time I've seen Critical Role. And you know what? I'm glad I waited this long. I have developed a dungeon mastering style that is so different from what most people do. And I love it. I love how I DM my games. And I think that everybody can kind of benefit from that. And if you're looking for more specific dungeon master advice, read the spell lists. <laughs> read those spells. It is a third of the player's handbook is dedicated to spells. If you were in school, you would not miss out on a third of your textbook. <laughs> that is a bad idea. That's a good way to fail. Read the spells. They're there for a reason. Players can have them. That's the reason. As for content creators, I actually run a two-week course at my old college mm. on content creation. This is the advice that I give those students, especially for like starting content creators. This advice is so generic. It hurts almost to say, but genuinely just start. Make a lot of garbage make bad content make really really bad content 
and there's no better place to make bad content than TikTok. Oh my God, it is the best place to make horrible, horrible content. There is no standards. Do you want to know what videos get millions of views? Old people trying to figure out how phones work. That stuff is gold every time. Just make tons of bad content because a lot of people like I have so many ideas about how they want to make content. You don't know yourself well enough on your journey yet. You don't know what content you're going to enjoy making. You probably have an idea about what content you like to watch, but figuring out what you like to make is actually a different question with a different answer. It might be adjacent. It might be close by. I like skit videos. I make skit videos. I make skit videos that I don't think anyone else makes though. And that's kind yeah. of the point. And that might be giving yep. myself a little bit too much. I am generic in a sense, but I do think that making bad content to figure out what you are actually passionate about is the first step on any content creator's journey. If I was to give more advice for more seasoned people, view content creation as a bit of a craft. Practice that craft. View the parts of your craft that you're taking up the most of your time and get good at them. I got good at editing. I realized that that was taking up most of my time, so I learned it. I got good at it. And I try to get better every video I make because that takes up my time. That is what I spend my time doing. And if you're going to spend your time doing it, it's worthwhile getting good at it. So if you're a more seasoned content creator, you're already in it. Look at what you're doing. Look at what you're spending your time on. If you're spending a lot of your time filmmaking, get good at filmmaking. Get good at camera work. Learn that stuff. Learn what like the different shots are. Learn what you're good at. Get better at your craft and work on it every day. This isn't to be like, you're bad if you're not doing it. But this is to say, if you're at that point, awesome. There's still more to go and it's great. Excellent. Thanks so much for sharing that advice with us. And finally, where can people find your work? What are you working on that people might be excited about that's coming up? Tell us all about that. I am Offbeat Outlaw everywhere. That is on YouTube. That is on TikTok. That is on Instagram. That is on Twitter. I got that name on lock. No one else has that name. And for stuff that I've got coming up, you can find all of my videos there. There should already be a video out now about how to do the most damage I have currently found in a single turn. And also, there's going to be more videos on my channel soon about monster design, about how to design mm. high-level D&D encounters. I know this is coming out later, but hopefully the, my first video should be up, and it's about this creature called the Undreamed that me and my friend Brooklyn Tuesday designed. It is a nasty little thing. I am so excited to throw it at people because... I like screwing with mechanics a lot, and oh, it's so beautiful. Watch the video. I'm not going to spoil it. Uh, <laughs> awesome. Yeah, after watching Brooklyn's stuff, I can tell she's diabolical with some of the stuff she thinks up, and so you two together, that's a match made in Avernus, so really excited uh, to see what that's like. We basically agreed that I am a demon, and they're devils, and we are engaged in an eternal blood war. We argue all the time, but when we're a team, it's bad. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. Yeah, I'll make sure to add links specifically to those videos so people can check them out. But I'm excited to see monster design stuff because I feel like that's something that I haven't seen a lot of. So that's a good little niche to find yourself there. A lot of people talk about character builds, but there's not a lot of encounter design and monster stuff out there. So that'll be cool to see. All right, excellent. Well, thanks so much for joining me, Offbeat. Been a ton of fun. It's great to chat with the person who I've watched many hours worth of ranting and raving on the screen. So always good to kind of get to know people and make friends out there. But thanks so much for joining and uh, really excited to see what other stuff that you make next. Excellent. Thank you. I'm excited to see how this podcast turns out.
Thank you for listening to How Not to DM. Now it's time for a sneak peek into next week's guest, Reed, the DM of Sneak Attack. There's just nothing for me quite like creating something out of nothing and then like presenting that to a brand new group of doe-eyed players and just see them like eat it up and run with it and stuff like that. That's just my favorite thing in the world. And so I feel like I've always got three or four different campaign ideas kicking around in my brain, but I know none of them are actually going to come to fruition in that regard. It's just me not being able to stop, <laughs> stop dreaming and stop, stop wanting to create. To hear more about Reed's journey from running his first game to creating an actual play podcast with over 8 million listens to date, tune in next week. Remember to check out my Patreon if you haven't already for even more sneak peeks. Here's a friendly reminder to rate and review the show and share it with your friends and family who play TTRPGs as well. New reviews will be read out at the end of the episode as a thank you. Thank you to the team at T4C Studios, The Dragon, for help editing and producing this episode. As a reminder, if you are a content creator, either podcast or video, check out videoeditors.online or podcasteditors.online, as it's the same team who helps produce this show as runs those websites. Another quick reminder, if you could please to check out the episode links to enter your email into that Fireball Forge landing page so that I can keep you in touch about when I release the new game, Two Hot One Shot on Kickstarter. That'd be great. Thank you. My intro and outro music is by Daniel Zombo. The Quickfire Chaos music is by Xcat, and the Quickfire Chaos mood music that plays underneath while we're roleplaying is by Arcane Anthems. Check out the episode notes for more of their great work. And as always, until next time, roll some Nad 20s for me.